from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy in the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Chris, today we have uh, one of my colleagues as a guest. Uh, Sona Golder is a professor of political science, the co-editor of the British Journal of Political Science, a, uh, a, a uh, student of comparative politics, and uh, an expert on Europe. And uh, we are fortunate enough to have her to talk about um, another in our series of this kind of world tour of democracy. And we're going to be talking about Brexit. Yeah, perhaps the best known here of the uh, cases that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one that seemed in a way, if for no other reason than the timing and because of uh, President Trump's uh, support of Brexit, Uh, That seemed to almost anticipate uh, the Trump election, especially in retrospect. Oh, absolutely it did. And um, I remember thinking, well, I mean, that's not going to happen here. But but it it almost exactly is the same thing. But the more we learn about it, the more we know there are actually even connections between the two. Mm -hmm. That uh, Cambridge Analytica, the data firm that... Well, you're just jumping right into the weeds here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't think... I I think this is uh, not not unimportant. No, I agree with you. That uh, Cambridge Analytica, Robert Mercer was involved, Steve Bannon was involved. I mean, some of the same people that... And some of the same organizations that helped to... uh, Helped to uh, elect Donald Trump were also involved in what was called the Leave campaign mm-hmm. uh, because there was basically a political campaign around this referendum as to whether or not Britain should leave the uh, European Union. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it is um, dramatic how often we see this same kind of thing, this kind of um, anger and fear. Um, but, but well, look at, look at the similarity in the, in the slogans. Uh-huh. From uh, you know the Trump campaign, it was "Make America Great Again," right? And in the uh, in the uh, in the Brexit Leave campaign, it was "Take Back Control." Mm-hmm. I think these people who are angry feel like, look, I obeyed, I did everything I was supposed to do, I played by the rules, and now suddenly the rules are changed, and I am left high and dry. And what's more. I feel maligned, ignored, disrespected by these elites. So, so, and whenever I, you know, whenever I yell about this or complain about it, the first thing I get is, "Oh, you're a racist." And so, and so, I, I get the sense that there's this under that part of this response is, "You're an elite. You don't like this. Good." And that's enough reason for me to vote for. And, and what you also see in, in, I think, both of the cases, and I, and I uh, read, this, uh, read this phrase somewhere learning, reading up on Brexit and thought it really, really fit, was the notion of wells of resentment, mm. that both campaigns are picking up just on different kinds of resentment mm-hmm. that are out there. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, it is this kind of sense of economic loss that I didn't get ahead what everybody else right. did. And, and we've talked before about how, you know, the economic recovery was uneven. Yes. And, and and rural people in many countries felt, you know, really left behind. And and were. And, and were left yeah. behind. Mm-hmm. Yes, they feel that way because mm-hmm. they were. Mm-hmm. But you know, resentment over over immigration, which was really an issue in the British in the British campaign. Uh, resentment over different kinds of cultural loss as the country beco- as countries become more ro- multi multiracial, multiethnic right. and uh and and more tolerant. Mm-hmm. Uh and so all of these factors were in both kinds of places. All right, so we've said enough. Let's uh, let's bring in Jenna and uh, Sona and learn more about Brexit. Great. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Sona Golder. Sona, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. 
So there's a lot to talk about uh, with Brexit and uh, still a lot kind of yet to be unknown. We'll maybe get to some of those uh, later on. But I'd like to, to start off by talking a little bit about uh, how how the original referendum came about in 2016. Um, I think here in the U.S. we tend to think about uh, referenda and more kind of direct democracy measures as things that are maybe a little bit um, more around the margins of policy. So, for example, minimum wage or I know medical marijuana is kind of big in the in the news right now. These are these are important issues, but not something that's like fundamental to how a country is, is structured and how its trade agreements work. So um, how how did it come to be in the UK that that Brexit was decided through basically this this direct democracy uh, referendum vote? I don't think when it comes to important EU initiatives, um or things that are going to have a huge effect on on countries that it's unusual to propose a, a referendum. And in other countries in the EU, so back in 92, I think when they were trying to get everyone to agree to the Maastricht Treaty, there were referenda in at least three countries. So France had one, and it passed just barely. It squeaked through. Uh, so it was referred to as the little yes. Denmark actually said no the first time, right? Um, and in the UK, both left-wing and right-wing leaders have proposed, oh, we should have a referendum on this, sort of multiple times over previous years. And they never follow through. But so I don't think to the UK public it would have seemed like something, you know, that was unprecedented. Right. So, so what was it about this period in, in 2015, 2016, that that was the time that it actually came to fruition? Ever since the Maastricht Treaty, which uh, was in the early 90s, there's been a lot of conflict among some members in in England or in the UK who have been sort of more Eurosceptical because of that, because it led to a kind of a, a deepening of the connections and sort of more policy coordination, right, that went beyond just we're going to have a single market. Um, and so that's been going on for the last couple of decades. Um, and then you had new countries in the in Central and Eastern Europe join in 2004, a couple more in 2007. And the UK was the only country who said, like, we're not going to set any restrictions on how quickly people can come, you know, move, live here and work here. A lot of people moved then to the UK because the other countries had restrictions, which the UK hadn't anticipated. And so there were many more migrants. And then you had the financial crisis. Right. And so all of these things, I think, just kind of came to a head. And the Prime Minister, David Cameron, said, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to deal with this, I'm going to get a better deal from the EU, right? And then we're going to have a referendum. Mm-hmm. So so did, did Cameron go into it thinking that the end result would be that the UK remained in the, in the EU? Almost assuredly, yes. <laughs> so he was kind of calling, calling a bluff. Yeah. To, yeah. Um, and so we've we've heard a lot kind of thinking about the, the state of democracy in, in Europe and throughout the world more broadly. It seems like immigration and economic inequality seem to emerge as themes over over and over again. It seems like different countries are like manifesting this in different ways. Some are reacting by having an authoritarian leader come to power like in, in Brazil or in, or in Hungary or in Turkey. Um, some are taking to the streets like they are in France or, you know, having having ref- um uh, having uh, these uh, referenda votes like like Brexit, um, you know, do you have thoughts on kind of this like the the bigger trend or you know some some of the different ways that that these these countries are dealing with with the same problems? If you think that they are trying to all wrestle with the the same issue, 
one common issue that all of these countries are dealing with is the financial crisis, right? And you have this economic crisis. And I think you have a lot of people in many of these countries who just, they feel left behind. And they feel like their their leaders, the traditional leaders who are in government, and on both sides of the aisle, just, they're not helping them, right? And so then, you know, maybe in France, this manifests itself by, by protest in the street, because that's, that's traditionally very French. Um, and in the UK, uh, I think people are just sort of frustrated that neither the Labour Party nor the Conservatives are like really doing anything. Um, and so the status quo doesn't really seem necessarily that appealing. Yeah. Can, can we maybe uh, take a step back there? Can you explain or, or, or give us an overview of the, the different political parties in, in the UK and where, where they stand? Sure. There are two main parties. And so you've got Labour on the left, um, and it's, I guess, traditionally a socialist party. But I think you can think of it as akin to the Democratic Party in the United States. And then you have the conservatives on the right, and you can think of them as akin to the Republicans. They have the same electoral system we do, which is why you tend to get most people voting for these two main parties. And even when most people don't vote for them, they get the most seats. Right? Um, unlike the US, other parties do get into the, the parliament. And typically, we tend to ignore them because you have these two main parties. One of them usually has a majority. And um, so, so what do we know about the, the people who voted for Brexit? People who voted for Brexit tended to be uh, more rural. They tended to be older. They tended to be less educated. I think they tended to be male. What do we know about what might have motivated them to vote that way? Frustration with the current, uh, the current parties. The parties had been moving since the 80s, I think. Had, they'd both been moving to the center. And there was a sense from a growing sense from a lot of voters that there just there really wasn't much difference. Um, the Labor Party was no longer really addressing concerns of the workers. Um, the conservatives were not sort of addressing the concerns of their constituency, and people just felt left out. And and there was also, I think, much like we saw here in, in the U.S., a lot of use of social media to spread information or, or in some cases misinformation. I think, you know, we we can maybe recall headlines of people going in to vote and then Googling what is Brexit after they had already cast their vote. Um, so what what extent or what role did, did uh, social media play here? Well, I think there are some popular sort of political figures on both sides, although I think perhaps the more charismatic and attention-getting figures were on the side of uh, the Leave campaign. Um, and so in as much as that gets presented sort of more on social media than they might have had a bit more of a voice. And then on the Remain side, you had the economists and the, the, the experts and the academics, and they might not have been quite as entertaining. Yeah, and that's and that's the other thing too that I, I found interesting about this process is there were full fledged campaigns on on both sides of this. So what what were the kind of positions or you know um, uh, rationale that each campaign gave for staying or, or leaving? The remainder said it would be a disaster for the economy um, if if the UK pulls out, um, and they made that case. And to some extent, they probably exaggerated that case. Um, but I think they thought this this case is so obvious, right? If we just say this, people are going to understand it and they won't want to leave. 
Um, and the people who wanted to leave said, we don't have control over our borders, right? We're seeing these massive, you know, sort of problems with immigration. We don't have control over, and then they would sort of make these somewhat misleading statements about the extent to which Brussels controls every aspect of policy, you know, sort of in uh, in the UK. And then there were claims that we'll be able to, we'll get all this money back and we'll use it to fund the National Health Service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, and also I think, was there an element of, of nostalgia there as well, similar to the, the Make America Great Again rhetoric that, that we heard in, in 2016 in the, in the US? I think a lot of this just People had particular views, and then some things would resonate. So if you were someone who had more of a, a British or, you know, even an English identification, you probably tend to look back to, um, you know, we won the war, right? We can do this. We don't need other people. We can do this on our own. We did it on our own before. Um, if you have more of a European identity, then you're sort of paying attention to those arguments. Mm -hmm. So the the vote happens in, in June of 2016, and now here we are in uh, February of, of 2019 as, as we record this. Um, March 29th, I believe, is kind of the, the big day when everything is, is, is supposed to happen. Um, can, can you lay out what uh, some of the, the options are? Because there still has not, as at least as of when we're recording this in February, there hasn't been a, a clear deal struck or kind of a clear path forward about how this is all actually going to unfold in practice. Right. So after the referendum, um, it wasn't immediate that the UK was going to pull out. They actually had to trigger, you know, Article 50, um, which the new prime minister, Theresa May, did. Um, and so she's been trying to negotiate an actual deal and that that would, um, if she could get enough people in parliament to vote for it, then there would be this deal that would sort of set up some kind of some kind of rules for what the new relationship is going to be. And if that doesn't happen, then people talk about a hard Brexit. So there's no deal. And it's completely unclear what happens. Um, yeah. And so, you know, people are like stockpiling food and like making all these preparations. And it, it, it kind of um, on some levels reminds me of like the, the Y2K preparations that happen. Um, so what what are you know, why might people be doing that kind of what's at, at stake here? How different might life be if there's not kind of a, a, a concrete plan put in place? So the UK is an island nation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just it's not clear what happens if if they crash out without some kind of deal, can the trucks, right, can the trucks get through? And so you hear people talking about, like, what happens with the lorries, you know, like at the at the borders? You know, can they travel in? Can the goods come in or not? Um, and so that's the issue. Like, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And so what um, what are some of the, the obstacles that are, are preventing a, a deal from, from being struck here? If you look at the members of parliament, some of them still don't want to leave. And so they're hoping that somehow a new referendum could either be called or that it would just be voted in parliament that they're not really going to leave. You have some people who really want the hard Brexit. Um, and so the prime minister is looking for like a majority who will vote for her deal. And she's she's having a hard time finding it. So her party is the conservatives are split. Labor is also split. Um, and it seems like there's a lot of party politicking going on, right, where people are, and so it seems like the labor leader really wants to force a vote of no confidence so that labor can get into office. That's more important than than Brexit. Right. And and in these, the, the past year or so, there has been 
um, kind of a, a at least some some semblance of of a movement to have a second referendum, right? So what 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 does that look like? What what do do those folks think are think might happen if 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 there's a second vote? What are they trying to achieve? I think they're just hoping that everyone will have come to their senses or enough people will have come to their senses. The original vote was pretty close. It was 52 to leave, 48 to, to remain. And so they're hoping that all those people who voted thinking it wouldn't happen have changed their mind. But it's not clear at all that if you held a second referendum that it would be any different. And what has the, the EU's response to, to all of this been as, as the, the UK tries to figure out what it's going to do? So the EU... I think, has been trying to work out some kind of deal where there's still a, a good trade environment, like sort of as, as much as possible, because they don't want their own economies to suffer. At the same time, they don't want to be too generous to the UK because you don't want to give other countries the incentive to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Following up on, on, on the EU, do, do you see the EU as being a, a democratic institution in and of itself? I think so. I can certainly see why a lot of citizens who find all of the different aspects of the EU and its institution to be confusing and boring at the same time, right? I can see why they don't necessarily see it as such. But every citizen of an EU country, you elect members, right, to the European Parliament, right? And so you vote for these people. um, They represent you. There's an election coming up in 2019, right? So people know they get to vote for these people. One of the decision-making bodies is um, the European Council. And that's actually made up of countries' ministers, the ministers in their own government. So if there's a group of, of justice ministers meeting or the ministers of the economy, like that's your government minister going to represent you, right? And so that person, you know, that's someone who that's your government. And so I think... It's more difficult because now it's it's not just your country, right? And those people who have more of a sense of a European identity, which is the majority in every other member state other than the, the UK, <laughs> I, I think they have a more of a sense that it's it's democratic. So, Sona, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, you have studied uh, comparative politics. You follow all kinds of, of experts on, on what's happening in, in the U.K. What do you think is the, the most likely outcome that we'll, we'll see here once we get past March 29th? I think it's most likely that some kind of deal is going to be passed, right, as we get closer um, to March 29th. I think the hard Brexit option is unlikely because I think people will see as that gets closer and closer, enough people are going to be willing to to sign on to some deal that Theresa May is is offering. Um, the one problem, and we haven't talked about this yet, is Northern Ireland mm-hmm. and the the infamous backstop. Yeah, yeah. So let's 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 talk about that for a minute. What what is the backstop? How does Ireland figure into to all of this? It's a huge problem. The backstop is a way of saying, well, even though the UK is going to pull out of the EU, uh, we're not going to have a hard border between Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and the Republic of Ireland. And nobody's quite sure how that happens, right? And so one option is you have a hard border. One option is you don't have a hard border, but then Northern Ireland is essentially still following EU regulations. And then there's a de facto border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, which people don't want either. Um, And then you have the complication of the Good Friday Agreement from 1998, which really went a long way to solving the problems of 
of, of terrorism in, in Northern Ireland. And nobody wants to go back. Nobody in Ireland, Northern Ireland or the Republic, wants to go back right, to those to those problems. And it seems like something that's been largely ignored or wasn't really an issue uh, for the people voting, like certainly in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they were you know, only thinking about their own concerns, maybe. Is, is that fair to say, as opposed to what, what Ireland may or may not want or when it, you know? I think the implications of, like, would this affect the Good Friday Agreement? Do we even know what the Good Friday Agreement is? Um, yes. I don't think it really came up a lot. And those people who were paying attention to it, I think, are the ones who just thought, well, this is never going to happen. Well, we'll certainly uh, see where things come out. This episode will come out in mid-March, so uh, who knows what will happen between now and then. But um, thank you, uh, Sona, for helping all of us come up to speed on on how we got here and what the the lay of the land is on Brexit. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, so that was very educative, right? <laughs> we both learned a lot from that and uh, uh, very helpful. And, and um, Among other things, Sona's a terrific teacher. Yeah, right. And, uh, and we're all uh, better for it. So, so a couple things. I mean, again, our objective is not to predict, right? We don't know what's going to happen. Honestly, I'm not even sure I know what I want to happen, right, in, with, you know, by the time this airs or on March 29th. But, but there are some really important dimensions of of democracy here. And one of them is just this idea of the referendum. And we've talked about it before. But in this case, um, the both the strengths and the dangers associated with, with direct democracy are just out there uh, for everyone to see. Right. Well, Sona made the point that, you know, in Europe, lots of countries use the referendum mm-hmm. for big decisions mm-hmm. around whether or not to join the European Union, including in Britain. So right. it kind of made sense yes. that they had, all, they had all voted to get in, mm-hmm. that they would all vote, that they would all vote to get to get out. But you know, as we've talked about before, uh, referendums simplify and make binary very complicated choices. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was really a, uh, it was really like on steroids mm-hmm. because there was really very little talk at all in the campaign, especially from the Leave. Right. side about what that actually is going mm-hmm. to mean in right. practice. Right. What, what's going to happen to Northern Ireland? It was right. set up as a panacea mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. all your problems mm-hmm. and all your grievances, uh, but we're going to leave the details to later. But the details here are going to be very important. The, the other thing about this referendum, right, not only it, it's a yes, no, um, and as when it's just one question, I think this um, both feeds on and exacerbates the kind of hyperpartisanship we see in in many countries because it's either you're either all this way or you're all that way. Well, and and you're also seeing in a a a similar sort of polarization of the electorate that we've seen in a lot of mm-hmm. countries. Certainly mm-hmm. here, not so much in the Brazil case when we talked about that, but where on one side, you know, you have sort of rural versus urban. Mm-hmm. I, I thought Sona really laid out the yes. coalition well, right? That it, it was rural rural people who were voting to leave and and urban people to stay. Older voters leave, younger voters stay. Less, uh, less educated. educated people leave, less uh, more educated people stay. And male. And male, mm-hmm. yeah, which mm-hmm. seems to kind of go. It, 
which I don't fully understand it, but it but it is so similar <laughs> mm-hmm. to the uh, to the Trump coalition right. and to coalitions that we described, I believe, in Hungary as oh, well. Oh no, absolutely it is. Yeah. And, and 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 that is very polarizing because it's setting urban against rural in mm-hmm. such discreet such clear ways these days. Well, I mean they I mean, just as this kind of amalgam of resentment that we were talking about before, um, you know, just has so many pieces and it's all impossible to untangle those same that same amalgam is, is is referenced here yeah and groups that are that are really being left behind mm-hmm. in this uh, new economy coming out right. of the economy and new culture let's face it right yes. i think it is fair to say that, and i think um uh, sana mentioned this the 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 fact of migration was real right and 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 especially in some of the um you know more urban centers there's a lot of people you know a lot of migrants coming in um, and so it's not like that's um, not true. No, and it was overstated. It, yeah, but I think it's also perhaps, and I was listening to Andrew Sullivan talking about this the other day, and Andrew, Andrew Sullivan was talking about how you have to understand Britain's a different country than the United States. This is a multi-ethnic country, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Britain not necessarily so. Right. So it, it was more of a shock mm-hmm, even mm-hmm. Than, than here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that raises just this, you know, this specter of, of, of either you see it as a hope or a, you know, over a fear, depending on your, where, you, where you sit on these issues. But I do think that there's an issue of just how sustainable this reaction, this resentment is. Right. And I think this whole, you know, watching this whole Brexit over the over the, uh, you know, from the time of the campaign on, I mean, you just get the this sense of sort of flat footedness on the part of of traditional parties and politicians Mm -hmm. to to know how to get a get a handle on this and and deal with it. And so, you know, one uh, one other thing that I find very similar and Sona kind of referred to this, but without using the term, there's a disruptive aspect mm-hmm. in both of them. I mean, you know. You mean to Trump and to Brexit. Yeah, to uh-huh. Trump and to Brexit. So Brexit is like, we don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to disrupt the mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with Trump, it was very similar. It was a sense of we're going to come in. We're going to do things differently. Right. We're going right. to shake it up. Exactly mm-hmm. what that means. We're, right. We'll see. Well, actually, this honestly, disruptive I, feeling. I, I think um, a lot of. Trump voters won't won't accept this characterization, but I think in both cases you got this sense that, oh, elites don't like this. Good, yes. and that was that was a reason to vote for it. Well, so this has been uh, perhaps the uh, the last in this series of uh, podcasts we're doing about democracy in other countries. Although I'm sure we'll be returning to it in different different ways we go forward. Uh, you know, if nothing else, it, it, I, I learned a lot about what's going on in our own country mm-hmm. by looking at what's happening in these other countries. Speaking to the relevance and uh, importance of comparative politics. Yeah, right? Well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So thanks to all the folks who gave us their time and their expertise, and we are all educated from it, as I hope you are and uh, you were. And thanks a lot for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman, and this has been uh, Democracy Works. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Kay Summers, host of Big World. Did you ever wonder why anyone would join a paramilitary group? 
Have you watched the Me Too movement develop and wondered if it will benefit women without a power base? I think it's curious that the U.S. funds versions of Sesame Street in Afghanistan, Nigeria, and Pakistan. Ever sit around with your friends and analyze the politics at play in Star Wars? So have we. In the same way that our friends at Democracy Works rise above the daily news cycle to look at broader issues impacting democracy, we at Big World bring you conversations that get you thinking about things differently or even just thinking about different things. Big World is produced by the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C. Join us for a new conversation that takes international affairs to interesting places each month. Stream episodes of Big World at american.edu sis or wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks.